when and how should organizations appoint their crisis response teams? I'm Edward Siegel, a leadership strategy senior contributor for Forbes.com and author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. My guest today is Eric McNulty, who's the Associate Director of Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. He'll discuss the best time to appoint crisis management response teams, who should be appointed, and how to ensure that team members will work well together. Welcome to the Crisis Ahead Show, Eric. I appreciate you being with me today. Thanks, Edward. Happy to be here. Why is it so important for government agencies and organizations in the private sector to have a crisis response team? Well, I think when a crisis hits, you want people who know how to work together, who have the relative and subject matter expertise connection within the organization, but most important, who can actually function as a team, because you're going to have to start marshalling resources, making decisions, taking positions on things. And so you don't want people to have to figure out how to work together in that moment. You want to have that part down cold so they can then focus on the situation itself. Well, in assembling a team, what are the basic duties and responsibilities of a typical team? Well, first of all, you want to cover the the functional areas that may be affected. So you want legal communications, HR, operations, if that's if that's the case, the various parts of the organization that are going to be affected. So you have that functional expertise, but then you also want to look and see who has the temperament to be on a crisis team, who is good at decision-making under pressure, who can tell truth to power, who is going to be able to have the stamina to go through a crisis response. So it's that combination of functional expertise and the right temperament that really makes for a great crisis team. Do you think uh, one team should be able to handle every possible crisis that might strike an agency or company, or should different teams uh, be appointed for different types of crisis situations? I think it's great to have a a fairly robust, large uh, total team to have from which you can draw subsets. So think about all the different components you might have and have Second, seconds or alternates for those people. And then when you bring an organization, you may find you need everyone, or if it's a more focused incident, you may just need three, four, five of those people be able to pull them together. And it may be, again, the, the primary or the alternate, depending on who's available at any time. That gives you the greatest amount of flexibility. And what do you think is the best time to make these appointments? You know, today, tomorrow, <laughs> right away. I mean, I think you really want you really want to jump in, and I think you want to make it a very intentional and careful process. So, what I tend to recommend is that you don't have people at the top of a function, but you have a layer or two, usually a layer below that, and get people to nominate. So, you think of you ask people, okay, who who has been through a crisis before? If you have someone who is good at telling you the straight truth? Who have you seen work well with others? And get that nomination process. Then you can assemble them, begin to work them through uh, getting together so they can work as a team, exercise and drill so they get used to it. And so the sooner you have that in place, the better, but you have to keep them exercised regularly so they don't lose that uh, that cohesion they're going to need in a crisis. How much worse could a crisis be if a company or federal agency doesn't have that team in place and then the crisis strikes and they're behind the eight ball? How much worse could uh, the crisis be if they don't have that team in place? I think it can get a lot worse. I mean, one of the, the truisms I always go back to is that you can't always prevent the initial incident, but you can always prevent the secondary crisis of a fumbled response. So 
once a crisis starts, it tends to move quickly. And so if your team is not in place, if they get behind events, they're trying to play catch up, they wind up reacting rather than responding. They can make mistakes. You may be late into the media cycle. You may be late getting uh, in touch with uh, your various stakeholders who are affected. And then once you're playing catch up, it's really, really hard to get back in front of things. So it can get much, much worse because someone else may own the story or just events may cascade in ways that you have worse consequences than you would have had had you caught it early. And are there specific factors or guidelines that should be considered when appointing members of a crisis response team? I think first and foremost, you want them to be willing to be on that team. So it's good to give an opt-out if someone's chosen for a team and really doesn't feel they're up to it for whatever reason. And that may be a permanent opt-out or maybe a temporary uh, if someone's got a home situation or something else where they may not be as available as you'd like them to be. So that, that's one thing. Um, and then secondly, as I mentioned, you want people who can work well with the rest of the team because you're going to have a lot of things happen that, that cross over their various areas of expertise. And you want them to be able to be able to have productive conflict, argue in a, in a positive and productive way to get to a best possible outcome, and then be able to make decisions and take action in a uh, as effectively and quickly as they can as possible. And who should be responsible for making those appointments? Is it the function of the CEO, uh, vice president, uh, chairman, board of directors? Uh, who should get involved in making those decisions? It really varies a lot by industry. So I, I work a lot in the uh, or within a government agency as well. You know, those that have uh, a, lo a lot of risk will often have in the private sector side sort of a health, safety, and security or health, safety, and environment function. And the head of that is a good person who, because that person will likely be accountable for how the crisis response is handled to have, be involved with that. And then I think of the executive who is going to be uh, closest to the, the, the incidents. So again, I've seen uh, global organizations where they like to handle things corporately. So there the CEO would be involved in helping pick those people or at least approving the choices that are made. Other organizations who like to handle things as locally as possible. So it may be a country manager or a country president or a regional president who makes those appointments. Uh, on the government side, similarly, it may be the uh, the head of the agency. Because I, don't, I, I never recommend the head of an agency be the person who's in the weeds trying to do the response. They've got to run the agency day to day, have people you trust, have people you can count on who report up to you and keep you informed and bring you in as needed. So you want to keep it where, again, the person with ultimate account accountability feels comfortable with that team, trusts that team, uh, can rely on their expertise. So it can't be somebody that's so far removed that they, they don't know the members of the team. That's a real mistake if it gets too tactical. And what about demographics and diversity? How important are they when assembling teams? Well, I think there's a lot of research that shows that diversity of thinking on teams is really important for being able to have a high functioning team. So I think, you know, again, you're looking at your business. What do your customers look like? What do your employees look like? What do those other stakeholders look like? If you can have a team that looks like them, or at least reasonably close to what they look like, you're going to be able to get the perspectives from those different generations, those different ethnic groups. You know, you want some gender diversity for sure. You want people who can see the problem differently, but who can also coalesce around a common course of action. So I think all the research would point to look for diversity as, as a key driver here. And drilling down a bit further, what specific skill sets should team members have? You know, I like people who can... Uh, 
whole paradox, which is going to sound strange, but who can think about multiple futures, who can think about the best case and the worst case, who can see not just the, the primary impact of an incident, but they also can grasp the secondary and tertiary impacts that are going to come. So people who are comfortable with complexity. As I mentioned, you want people who are not afraid to make a decision, who are not terribly risk averse, but also are not reckless. So they understand that prudent risk and they understand the the risk level that the organization will tolerate uh, because you can't get stuck in paralysis by analysis. You can't get stuck with inaction. You're going to have to be able to move. And then a high degree of emotional intelligence and the ability to create psychological safety in a room so that you are getting the straight story. You're being able to have open conversations and, and really operate in as clear an environment as possible. Does size matter? Should there be a limit to how many people serve on these teams? I think you want the team big enough that you can ha- you have that diversity, that you have some flexibility on who's working when and on what, and you can create subtasks. On the other hand, you don't want a team of 20 people or, or you know, a really big team that gets unwieldy. Um, I sort of think the Amazon rule of two pizzas is probably a good a good one here, that if you can feed the team with, with a couple of pizzas, that's about the right size. So somewhere between, uh, I'd say between eight and 15, and knowing that you may not convene all eight or all, or all 15 at any one time, but that gives you the room to, to surge if you have to, but and also gives you the range of expertise and diversity of thinking you need. What about leadership? How important is it to have a team leader and who is the best person to lead that team? That's a really important function, and I'm glad you asked that. I think when you're leading that, the team leader, as I see it, is the person who can make sure they've got that that higher meta view, looking at the big picture. So they're making sure all the details are being attended to, but they also can step back a bit and look at the bigger picture. Again, talk to the people who are casting some scenarios around best and worst case outcomes and thinking longer term. Uh, so you want that person to, in that role who doesn't have to then go and, and deal with the legal issues or the HR issues themselves. They can delegate that. Um, so I think and that role is someone who is trusted by the team and by to whomever they're leading up to. So if they're leading up to the CEO or to the board, that person has to have their trust. What their specific role is in the company, I think is less important. I've seen CFOs do it. I've seen general counsels do people from the general counsel's office do it. I've seen people from that health safety and environment role do it, do it really well as well. So it's, it's more about being able to run a team and see that big picture to be able to grasp the complexity of the situation. Does all this advice that you're sharing with us, does this apply to both the federal government settings and the private sector? Or is there a difference uh, between the nature and composition of corporate and government response teams? I think it's very similar with the exception that if you're in the private sector, you might want to have an investor relations person on the team uh, who can who knows that specific world because if the crisis is going to have an effect on your your stock price, that's important. Obviously, that's not an issue on, in the public sector. I think in government agencies, you need someone who knows how to work the interagency, as they call it. And your listeners in government will know what I'm talking about, that when you get uh, multiple agencies responding, you have to know how to work with those various agencies. And in the larger responses I have seen, uh, there's been somebody who was, who was given that task of, of you know, working the interagency, making sure the various players are informed, they're at the table when they need to be, and they're able to work as smoothly together as possible. Yeah, but what about testing? How do they know the team's going to work, their plans are going to work, uh, unless they put it uh, to the test? Uh, when, where, and how should the teams be uh, be scrutinized and see how well they do under pressure? 
You know, I like to make sure every team goes through a, a full-blown exercise at least once, preferably twice a year, and then you're working a tabletop at least quarterly, uh, and you can work shorter quick exercises, even even monthly. Uh, but you want to do it often enough that the, the team, again, is has that social cohesion, they're comfortable with each other, and that you're throwing at them the various risks they may face. So as new things pop up, as we learn more about emerging threats, pull them together, even for a quick exercise, a quick tabletop built around a, you know, a paragraph-long scenario. If this happened to us, are we ready? What are we not thinking about? What are the gaps we see? Because if you can keep that team with that crisis mindset and that response mindset, they're always thinking, they're always looking for how they can improve. And you begin to build that that strength over time. And that's true in, in business as well as on the public side. What do you think can be learned from these exercises? A number of things. On the operational level, certainly you can see where your processes and protocols work and where they fail down. I think it's even more important when you put people under into a scenario where there's some emotional stress, you'll see how they're going to perform when things are difficult. So if there's a, a death of an employee, if there is a, another significant decision with major consequences, how do they react? Um, and are they comfortable using your systems, again, reporting up. If you're, I, again, for a full-blown exercise, you want them reporting up to whomever they're going to have to report up to, be that the head of a government agency or to a CEO, uh, comfortable in that. They do a good job with that. If they may be in front of the media, throw some media pieces in there to see how they perform. And the other piece, which is often overlooked, is look at the ethical and moral dimensions of the crisis. So again, if you know one organization I worked with, they uh, and it, this is a real this wasn't an exercise, this was an actual event, but informed future exercises. It was an active shooter event, and initially the media reported that their employee was the shooter. That was something they hadn't trained for. Like, uh oh, how are we going to react to this? People are going to be looking at were there signs, was there training, et cetera, was there support for that person? It turned out that their employee was not the shooter, had a similar name, but a different employee was actually shot in the incident multiple times, serious injuries, a new employee who didn't yet qualify for health care. Now they have the dilemma. One person said, horrible incident. We should take care of this person. It's our obligation. Someone else said, well, being shot is terrible. Is it any worse than getting a serious cancer diagnosis? So are we, are we making a major policy change here, but when we provide health care? And it took them a while to figure that out, and they did They did get to a resolution they were comfortable with. But if you can throw those kind of things into exercises, that begins to get people to make the decisions when they've got time to really think about it as opposed to under the pressure of a crisis. So it sounds like a good active imagination could be very helpful in considering every possible worst-case scenario. Would you agree? Absolutely. You have to think like a script writer when you're writing, if you're writing those scenarios and whether you're internal or external to doing that. Again, you can pull things from the headlines and say, if this happened to us and there's something that happens almost every day, um, you know, and really think through it. What would happen here? What if we had to make that decision? What if we had to deal with that contingency? Are we ready? What are we not thinking about? Uh, and I actually, the good part of that is I found people actually enjoy doing that thinking. Because it is creative, it is it is challenging. It's not just going through the rote process of making sure they can do the checklist. It actually is making them think, and so that's where I have found more senior people, in particular, are willing to get engaged in the conversation. Well, we have an example in the news right now where the Department of Defense is uh, scratching their heads to figure out um, how a 21-year-old gained access to very sensitive, top-secret information and posted that information on, of all places, a game app. 
Uh, no one apparently had the imagination to think something like that could happen. Is that a good yeah, example? Apparently. Of, uh, yeah, it's a great example, I think. And it is, again, unfortunately, we have too many times had failures of imagination. But given the number of leaks we have had in recent years, you would, one would hope uh, that that was something that people were looking at really carefully. What are the different kinds of leaks that could happen? Where could they, you know, what were the, the leak scenarios that we might have to deal with? Uh, put a couple of creative people against that. They'll come up with a lot of different scenarios. And whether it's you know, it becomes the thing you exercise against or not. Just doing that thought process. If, you know, if we have an insider, what's their motive? You can't just default to the last time it was well, um, more ideological. It seemed the Edward Snowden case uh, over a long period of time. This was a very different kind of scenario, and we have to always be testing our imaginations to think what's going to come next because we keep seeing new and emerging threats uh, almost every day of the week. Well, getting back to the team members and they, they're testing and seeing if they're uh, how well they work together, what should companies and federal agencies do if it turns out that some members of their team are not a good fit and might be causing uh, more problems or internal conflicts? What steps should they well, take? Well, this is where I think it, why I think it's so important to, to put that person who is a layer down from the top person in their function, or even two layers down in some cases, because it's much easier to replace a person who is, you know, at, a, at an associate, assistant vice president level, let's say, on the private sector, or you know, a lower level on the government side, than it is the head of that function. It's much much harder to do that. It's also why I don't like seeing CEOs or heads of agencies on the actual crisis team, because if that person has to be replaced for any reason it's much, much harder to replace somebody at that level. You know, recall the the infamous now Tony Hayward at BP during Deepwater Horizon uh, when he said, I want my life back. That was a verbal stumble. It came, I think, from too much from fatigue of dealing with that response. I don't think he's a bad person, but he said an made an unfortunate statement. Replacing a CEO is not a thing you want to do in the middle of a crisis. So, but you can't be afraid to pull people out. If they're derailing the team, they have to come out. And I think that's where building a culture around your team where Again, you can opt out if you need to. We understand people get tired. We understand people uh, get frayed over time to be able to rotate people in and out. So it becomes less of you're letting the team down if you're not there than you want to be there when you can give your best and step back when you can't. Can you share with us any uh, examples of federal agencies and uh, companies in the private sector that you think are doing a good job uh, assembly, assembling and uh, testing their crisis response teams? I, I think one of the best I've seen on the uh, on the, pro the public side, and again, this does go back a bit, so I can't say, I'm not speaking about their current readiness, but when the team had to be pulled together for the Deepwater Horizon response, uh, Admiral Thad Allen, who was Commandant of the Coast Guard, was named National Incident Commander. Uh, and it turns out the statute that empowers that position doesn't say very much. So, so it's a good thing he was commandant of the Coast Guard, so we could command some resources. But one of the things he told us, he shared with us when we did our research and we're down, we deployed with him, was he, whenever he gets into a crisis situation, he has a list in his pocket of the people he wants to be able to call and put on his team. So he goes right, the, right to know who are the eight, 10 people he's going to call to be in roles and pull them together. And that became a very highly functional team. He knew I could count on them. They could trust him. He could trust them. And that was a really highly functional team over that 78 days of that response. On the private side, I uh, have worked with, with a couple of companies in the energy sector, and I can't name them, but I can tell you in the sector, because they take risk really seriously and they are touched by many crises, not just the things you think of as as 
dealing with energy, but an earthquake, uh, political crises, they have a highly developed team in their each country and each region. And they put a lot of time and training into picking the people and training them so that one in particular I'm thinking of, they have a sort of local level, then a country level, then a corporate level team. They've only ever had to stand up their corporate level team twice. Once was for Ebola and once was for COVID. Otherwise, they've been able to handle everything at a much more local level, which is the model they prefer. And they built an enormous amount of capacity there uh, and support for people who are in those roles. What's the interface, Eric, between the crisis management team and a crisis management plan? To what extent should the team be testing the plan and what can they learn from uh, those kinds of exercises? Well, I think there are an, uh, there's a number of planning functions that underlie a crisis response team. And so the crisis team may not be the ones testing everything. You may have a business continuity plan who's looking at one sort of things. You may have a legal team who is, who is thinking through what they're going to have to do if they have to deal with a legal situation. Um, so you want those individual teams who are developing plans to be testing them and feel their rigor, they're, they're check, checking their rigor. But then when you do a major exercise, bring as, bring as many of those planning elements you can in, into the mix so you can test and see if they are ready to go. Uh, because again, somebody in HR may see something in your legal plan that the lawyers didn't see because they were looking at it through one lens. You may see something, in, the IT folks may see something in the business continuity plan the business continuity folks didn't think of because it isn't their expertise. There was one example during COVID, one company I spoke with, their uh, contingency plan business continuity side said, if we need to evacuate the premises or close the premises, get more laptops. Okay, that makes sense. What they didn't account for is once you get laptops, you can't just run down to your local superstore and buy them. You have to, you know, there's procurement, then you have to mirror them against the corporate network, put in all the security apparatus to keep it safe on the corporate network. All of that takes a lot of time that they hadn't accounted for. So if IT had seen their plans, they might have been able to help them. So I think sharing the plans across different functions that are going to be touched is really important. I'm sorry to say we're almost out of time. What's the most important things you'd like people to remember from our conversation today? What I'd like people to take from today is that a crisis has serious consequences, and therefore it's worth investing the time, the money, and the, and the effort to make sure you've got a team that's picked, that's trained, and that understands its role and what it needs to do. I think leadership is incredibly important because that crisis team is going to have to lead across among itself the various functions. It's going to have to lead up to the CEO, the board, the head of the agency, depending on what sector you're in, as well as keep a smoothly running team below them. So that leadership component, in addition to the operational and the functional piece, which is where most of the attention goes. And lastly, never underestimate the importance of the culture on the team, that they really are coher coherent and cohesive and they're able to work well together. Because if they can do that, they'll figure out the other stuff. They will be able to make the adjustments and adaptations, call on the expertise they need to get things done. If there's a lot of friction on the team, that's really, really hard to fix without pulling it apart and trying to put it back together again. Well, thanks for being on the Crisis Ahead show, Eric. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Edward. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Crisis Ahead. My guest today was Eric McNulty, the Associate Director of Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for, managing, and recovering from a crisis, or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. 
Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you're prepared for it, the better. Produced by HeartCast Media.